0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, forgotten and scorned taxpayers, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here at Blaze TV. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for a brand new week. Although the last day of November, the final month of this wretched year, this year. Of the revolution, the bloodless coup against our constitution, our liberties, our society. We are really excited to be back here after a number of days off. It sure seemed like a long break, but I'm sure you guys are thankful for that family time. I am as well, and kudos to all of you who actually followed your conscience rather than lawless edicts. And actually got together with friends and family. I certainly enjoyed my time with the kids and we played a lot of games together. Just uh, all, all around good time. I, I didn't do my typical uh, home improvement projects that I usually work on Friday and Sunday. So I am rested, ready to go. Although it is, it is really dreary today. Pouring rain, the type of day that you want to spend in bed. But we cannot do that because there is a ton of stuff to go over. And there was once a time... When you could go through a Thanksgiving weekend, a longer holiday weekend, and come back on Monday, nothing much has changed. But of course, that is not the era we live in. There is so much going on on the election fraud front, on the COVID fascism and lying front, on the criminal front. And they all kind of tie together. So we'll see how much we can get from each uh, portion of this today and, and throughout the next couple of days. But I wanted to note that this fuzzy COVID math is really the same thing as the fuzzy election math. Before Thanksgiving, we, we made this point several times that a lot of people are thinking, man, do you believe that we've reached the point where we could be in a banana republic? Do you really believe they could have cooked the election the way they did or the way you think they did? And my point is, look at what they're doing with the COVID data. And using that as a pretext to lock us down, to criminalize our way of life to criminalize living and breathing itself, and at the same time use that same phony data to let out real criminals to send the message that they will not initially lock up real criminals because somehow it will spread the virus more inside jails. Now we have a new analysis from the Wall Street Journal proving what we've been saying for seven months, that that's not true. There is no greater spread or at least death rate in the prisons and jails than in the general population. That was all built on a lie. So. It shouldn't surprise you that they would rig an election. Because again, as I've noted, the severity of rigging an election in itself is not as bad as the severity of rigging COVID data and then using that as a pretext to suspend democracy. So if I I were given a choice, okay, Daniel, there's two types of dudes we're dealing with. One guy is going to steal an election, but get in there and kind of not do much um he might not be a great leader but he's not going to destroy your life so um you know all right it's not fair it's we certainly don't want uh elections being stolen but at the same time it's much better than someone who even legitimately won an election And then once he's in power, he suspends democracy, suspends fundamental rights, lets out criminals. That's a lot worse. That is much, much worse. Much, much worse. So um, there we go with that. And with that, I want to delve into first the COVID stuff, then hopefully we can get to the election stuff And then if we have time, we can get to the criminal stuff. Again, steal an election with lying data. Steal our liberties with lying data. And release criminals with lying data. As I've been apt to say recently, revolutions have been fought over much, much less. Those are three kill shots on a civilization. So we have this first story I wanted to focus on. I'm going to have out today a long analysis. But Johns Hopkins, originally, they have this, uh, I guess, student-led publication like a lot of colleges have. It's called the Johns Hopkins Newsletter. And there was an article by one of the students, I'm assuming it's a student, Yanni Gu, titled A Closer Look at U.S. Deaths Due to COVID-19. And it was basically based off of an interview with this professor there who's an economics professor geneva brand and she posted her, her analysis was in the form of an hour-long video which i'm sure a few people have bothered to see before criticizing it and i saw this on thanksgiving morning most people saw it on wednesday i saw it thanksgiving morning and it just caught my eye The conclusion, these data analysis suggests that in contrast to most people's assumptions, the number of deaths by COVID-19 is not alarming. In fact, it has relatively no effect on deaths in the United States. And that obviously caught my eye, and I bookmarked it for later. I was you know, spending some family time then, and I said, I'll look at it later. And then, of course, when I went to look at it later Thursday night, the link was dead. It was taken down, and Hopkins put out a notice on Twitter. Oh, this was... Putting out false information, and we had to take it down. People were made, drawing the wrong conclusions from it. So it's funny how, just before we delve into this, have you ever seen a single analysis, study, paper, article, editorial from a pe- purveyor of panic porn that clearly, demonstrably overstated the cost of the virus, the the, the deaths of the virus? overstated the efficacy of masks or lockdowns, understated the cost of lockdowns, and has been taken down. I have not seen a single instance of that. You can't tell me nothing that has ever been put out in that direction has been false or misleading. I've never seen a social media label. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting how the arguments on behalf of lockdowns and mass totalitarianism are so fickle that they cannot withstand even a coexistence with even 0.1% of information and articles on the web showing a dissenting view. Somehow we're able to coexist with that and power our way through 99.9% 99.9% of information that's against what we're saying, but somehow they cannot withstand that tiny little bit of dissent. Because again, as I've noted, tiny little bit of that crack in a, in a, in a slightly open door, that little bit of, of, of light or sunlight that is brought into that dark room, boy, does that do wonders in illuminating the darkness. But anyway, the, there's nothing new. Honestly, to, to you guys, there's nothing new about the article. What was new is that it was published in the Hopkins letter. So, you know, that that's what made made all the, the to-do over it last week. But the reality is you guys already knew this stuff. That, look, I mean, we all understand that basically this virus only kill. you know, a lot of the deaths are made up. A lot of them are mislabeled. Because people merely tested positive. And then, you know, there are people who die from it, but but overwhelming majority of them who die from it um, would have died anyway, would have died maybe within a few months, really would have died last year. But they lingered for a couple months longer because last year was a lower excess death month. And if you would actually take a study of excess deaths and you take out the legitimate excess deaths that definitely exists because of lockdowns, because of the response to this, the mislabeling of excess deaths, ironically create excess deaths through the policies of lockdown, you will find a very low imprint of excess deaths. We've been pointing that out for months upon months. And basically, this woman, who is an economics professor, and again, This is, at heart, an issue of data analysis. This is not a medical issue. This is not a debate over how to treat COVID patients at a certain stage, what's the protocol, that's a different debate. But when you're discussing what has happened in terms of deaths, that is a data analysis issue, so someone who is an economics professor is actually going to be very well versed with that sort of research, much more than a typical doctor. So... You know, she basically notes that you take a look at the April excess deaths data. And granted, April is just one month and there's been a lot of other people who have allegedly died from COVID since then. But April, if you are to believe the narrative, April was the worst month. That was that first wave where we had the most deaths in any given month by far were in April. So you would see a really sharp spike in April. And particularly, you would expect to see a very sharp spike in the cohort of people 65 and above. And what she basically found was that if you you don't really see excess deaths, the proportion of deaths as a percentage from COVID to other things wasn't that 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 high. It was fairly constant among all age groups relative to other previous years. So you don't see that. And then she found a commensurate drop in deaths, meaning commensurate with what's labeled as a COVID death, a commensurate drop with deaths due to heart disease, respiratory diseases, influenza, and and pneumonia. And again, there's nothing novel about this. Tons of analysis have been done, published in very prestigious journals, um, uh, discussed by very prestigious people in the UK about UK excess deaths. This has been done in other countries as well. And we're like, hey, you know, did this cure heart attacks? I mean, the New York Times has done a number of articles on this. This is nothing new. But she wanted to suggest that basically, quote, the CDC classified all deaths that are related to COVID-19 simply as COVID-19 deaths. Even patients dying from other underlying diseases but are infected with COVID-19 count as COVID deaths. This is likely the main explanation as to why COVID-19 deaths drastically increase while deaths by all other diseases experienced a significant decrease i mean this is important stuff the original article and again this is gu gu this is the name of the student this is her analysis of brian's research so you know it's her editorializing a little bit it's not exactly synonymous but again the point is is true if the covid19 death toll was not misleading at all what we what we should have observed is an increased number of heart attack attacks and increased covid-19 deaths but a decreased number of heart attacks and all other death causes doesn't give us a choice but to point to some misclassification brian replied that so those words were from brian some sort of misclassification and that is a true point that is undeniable and hopkins in their response never disproved that meaning We've been making this point all along that what you should see is the same number of flu deaths, the same number of pneumonia deaths, the same number of heart and stroke deaths, the same number of Alzheimer's deaths in particular, and then an extra 260,000 COVID deaths. But we're not seeing that. I mean, that is obvious. We're not seeing that. There was nothing novel. It's just the charts she put together you know, was was a a bit of research that others haven't done, and they had some very intriguing findings. Now, what you would expect is for someone to put together an hour-long video with charts and similar analysis debating and debunking that. And that's fair game, and that's what we should be doing if we really cared about the truth. But that's not what's been done. Whenever someone tries to challenge the narrative, they Put out a lot of very, you know, tedious work. But the other side could just say, shut up. This is mean. This is wrong. This is dangerous. This can't go. Okay, well, how does that debunk the point? So on Friday, I think after a lot of us were making fun out of them, they felt they had to say a little bit more. So Yanni Gu, the same editor of this paper, this journal... This newsletter. So she posted, and that clearly wasn't from her. It was clearly from the higher upset Hopkins. A statement from Hopkins on why they took it down. Now, only two paragraphs of their statement even attempted to entertain and debunk some of the points. Most of it was the typical—it's just ad hominem and and just just rhetoric, not academic but political. They claim the article, quote, has been used to support dangerous inaccuracies that minimize the impact of the pandemic. Then, of course, they turn to the typical tried and tested method of insulting someone's credentials. As assistant director for the master's in applied economics program at Hopkins, Briand is neither a medical professional nor a disease researcher. But again, like we're not researching like the genomes and whatever. This is straight up raw data analysis. But um. The only point they make is that CDC said there's been 300,000 excess deaths. Now, first of all, roughly a third of them are lockdown deaths. So they forget to know that. I mean, that, that has been proven already. And then, among the rest of them, here's the deal. They're missing the point. They're playing this like Amelia Bedelia hyper-literal game. And and you could quibble with the way the student wrote up her analysis. And and this is what they often do. Like, you know, they'll say there's 100 measures of panic. And someone will write something with very good research showing that they're wrong. But in the process, they'll use categorical language themselves, which you're, you know, and academically you're supposed to stay away from. And they'll make it like zero. There's no problem. There's no desk. There's no this. But the broader point is not just that they're mislabeling it. But even if they are properly labeled as COVID deaths, it's they're not excess deaths in calendar year 2020. Okay. They don't like that Brian presented data of total U.S. deaths in comparison to COVID nineteen related really deaths as a proportion percentage, which trivializes the repercussions of the pandemic, and further does not disprove the severity of the COVID nineteen. So this is the the fall shows like. It doesn't disprove the severity and it trivializes the repercussions. Well, if you're pulling something, if you're pulling a paper, that means that there's academic stuff that's wrong. Not that you don't like the tone, that it trivializes. You don't write an emotional screed if you're an academic institution. We understand people have died from this. We understand the virus itself is not a hoax, and the fact that people have died from it is not a hoax. But the contention has long been that a number of the deaths are lockdown deaths. A number of the deaths are mislabeled. Th- those are your motorcycle accidents, your traumas, your whatever. They they tested positive for COVID. They were hospitalized for something else, um, not because of COVID, so the hospitalization is wrong, and then if they wind up dying, the death is wrong. And then... Maybe the student didn't spell it out in the right verbiage, but the data shows this point that, and we've said this a number of times, there's a number of people that absolutely did die from it. You're people that are very old or somewhat old, but it was their time to die. Remember, not everyone lives till the life expectancy. A lot live longer, but a lot live less. You know, my dad is um 70 and until. And This whole business, he was traveling for work all over the world. He had tons of energy. And thank God he's in great health. And I, um, you know, my mother too is pretty much in good health. And I am thankful for every day they are. And may God continue to give them good health. But, you know, what's said is I live in the same neighborhood that I grew up in. And I see a lot of people that are the contemporaries of my parents, some of them even three to five years younger, still in their 60s, and some of them are bent over and they seem to have, they're forever having surgeries and back surgeries and issues. And, and that's the thing, despite the advances in in in, in uh, healthcare and just generally people are healthier than a generation or two or three ago, uh, you know, we can't take for granted. Still, a lot of people do get sick in their 50s and 60s and kind of wither away earlier. So the virus seems to go after those people whether it's the earlier ones, whether it's the ones that die later in in the 80s or 90s, and the ones with those pre-existing conditions. But our point has been for quite some time that you could debate over the sensitivity of the language you need to use while while doing this. But our hypothesis has been, based on reams of data and, and information we're seeing, is that for the most part, the people that are dying at, at, from 65 to 75 from this virus are not those who would have gone on to live till 90. It's the ones that more or less would have died within a few months, and especially those that died in their 80s and 90s. It was essentially their time to die. And we always noted that if you would look at the excess de- death data over time, you will eventually see this. We could talk about sensitivity of language, but at the end of the day, if there really are tons of people that are dying three, five, even 10 years early from this, you will see a massive spike. You cannot miss that. And in most parts of the country, we really are not seeing that. We're seeing a bigger spike in young people due to the suicides and and, and drug overdoses. We're not seeing that. You would expect to see a massive increase in in the percentage of the pie. Obviously, most people who die in a given year are over 65. But, you know, there are people that die younger for whatever reason. But you would expect the percentage to increase over time. And we're not. And that's the problem. So, again, to be clear, a certain number of them, it doesn't mean they didn't die of COVID. They could have died of COVID. But a heck of a lot of them were in hospice care. And what's funny is they're like, they admit, so so they're admitting, they're seeding the point. They just don't like the way they expressed it. They know, Brian's study, right, you know, you would expect them to just say Brian's study is a pile of crap. They don't say that. They say Brian's study should not be used exclusively in understanding the impact of COVID-19, but should be taken in context with the countless other data published by Hopkins, the WHO, and CDC. (laughs) <laughs> so, like, what's funny is they're like, well, l- l- look at our other stuff. Well, okay, but, but look at this, too. I mean, th- that doesn't disprove this. Again, they're, like, kicking up dirt. And that's our point. None of us are using this to reinvent the wheel. We're looking at Brian's study as a broad, broad analysis of, In the broad context of many other things we're seeing. And that starts first and foremost with Professor Neil Ferguson. The godfather of lockdowns, Imperial College of London. When he testified at a remote hearing of a parliamentary committee, whatever they call them there. And he predicted early on, even early on before we saw much more of this. Even he said that two-thirds, it's going to be much more, but two-thirds of the people who would ultimately die in the UK, would have died within the year anyway. So it would have been within that calendar year. That's not an excess death. Doesn't mean they didn't die from it. Some of them didn't and they were mislabeled. Some of them weren't mislabeled in a technical sense. Remember, I mean, CDC, again, (laughs) we are using CDC and WHO's broad data, especially the data before it became political. And we're seeing the same concept. They themselves pointed to a broader narrative not that nobody dies from this, but that if you look at the civilization, it is a broadly not it is broadly not that much of an impact in terms of deaths. Whereas, with the, flu, the Spanish flu, which they're all comparing it to, the median age was 29, 28. You can't miss that. That crushed civilization. Here the median age is not just that it's older, but that it tends to track with life expectancy exactly life expectancy. In other words, in America where it's 78, 78, in in Scandinavian countries where it's more like 81, it's 81. What does that tell you? It's not just, oh, they're just old people. But it's more than that. It's mainly the old people that were slated to die young, to, 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 to die then. Now, some older people on the older side do die young, 67, 69, 72, below life expectancy. But that's true all the time. Again, you know, so... If this was a guy that was in trouble with diabetes and heart disease and he didn't have much time on the clock, even though he was, you know, he wasn't 90, he was 70 or 68. If, if COVID got him and COVID did legitimately get him. If it got him much earlier, you would see that in the excess deaths and they're not they're not disproving that point. And again, CDC is what told us that 94 percent of the deaths had the comorbid comorbidities. Comor- It doesn't mean that 94% of the deaths are mislabeled. But what it does mean is that most of the people who it kills are the ones who are expected to die. And that's the point she's showing in her analysis. How could you have the disappearance of all these pneumonia and heart and stroke and Alzheimer deaths? It means, it doesn't mean that literally they cooked the books I mean, at least not in this instance. They did in other cases. But what it does mean is that a lot of the batch of heart, Alzheimer's, pneumonia, stroke deaths that were slated to happen in 2020, COVID got them. Does it mean that COVID didn't kill them? No, COVID did kill them. But is that an excess death on on, on your country for that year? No. That's the point she's making. You could kick and scream, but we know this is true. What's funny is, after I sat down to write my article, just on Sunday, brand new study, published, I think in like a, it was a dermatology journal, mainly by Rutgers University immunologists and scientists. I think there was one or two maybe from Melbourne University as well in Australia. They studied... They had a sample of two hospitals in New Jersey during April, May, when things were very bad there. And they studied roughly, I want to say about 650 people who died in those two hospitals that were ascribed to COVID. Listen to this. They found that 89% in their study sample, 89% of those COVID deaths had DNR, do not resuscitate orders on them. Now, think about this. We're told you have people in the prime of their lives, or even if they're older, but they're, you know, they're good, they're living fine, and suddenly this, this virus comes and gets them that you trivialize and you don't care about, and it grabs them out of nowhere and puts them in the hospital. Well, in that case, I mean, you would be praying. You would have all sorts of hope. You'd say, oh, my gosh, please save them, please save them. You would have a DNR on them? Because, again, these are the people that were slated to die in the year 2020. It's not just seniors or vulnerable people. It's mainly the people who are going to die in the year 2020. I'm sorry, but I don't know about you, but like a guy who's 65 that has diabetes, but generally is living a functional life. he t- they, they tend not to have DNR orders on them. Okay. So that, that that is a very big finding we 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 found right after this uh this whole fiasco with Hopkins. And again, let's not forget look at the consensus before the censorship and before you are considered insensitive and a holocaust denier for writing this. March 26. Anthony Fauci along with National Institutes of Health Deputy Director of Clinical Research Clifford Lane, as well as CDC Director Robert Redfield, the three of them, published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, March 26, they predicted that once the true number of asymptomatic and subclinical cases would be factored in, quote, the overall clinical consequences of COVID-19 may ultimately be more akin to those of a severe seasonal influenza which has a fatality rate of approximately 0.1%, or a pandemic influenza similar to those in 1957-1968, rather than a disease similar to SARS and MERS, which have had case fatality rates of 9 to 10% and 36% respectively. In other words, they were trying to say it's not that people aren't going to die, but that the overall clinical consequences are not going to be worse than a pandemic flu that we've dealt with before. And that's what we've seen. That point rings true today. And it's especially true when, again, the flu has disappeared. See, the flu is a little bit different than the heart stuff. It's not that heart diseases disappear. It's that it's getting those people who would have died from it this year, COVID gets them first or at the same time, hospice care, whatever. Some of them are downright mislabeled. But the flu, there's an you know a microbiological immuno, immunobiological reason why it stops the flu from circulating. So again, you would only have severe clinical consequences, uh, an extra excess burden of death on, on, on a country, on a civilization, if you had the full-born flu together with COVID. We don't. If you just look at the data for week forty-six. Of CDC's Influenza Surveillance Report. That's about like November 16th. If you look at last year. During that week. There were 1,786 confirmed flu cases. This year there were just 41. That is a decline of 97.7%. Which tells you that for this year. COVID-19 is the angel of death's respiratory fatality tool of choice. With the exclusion of the other typical tools. So, it's just kind of an accounting gimmick. With X, if there truly were that many excess deaths, you wouldn't see this. So, that's the story here. How are we supposed to believe anything we see if we know there's an automatic rush that anything that tamps down, anything that shows good news, like the flu is down or. You know, maybe it's not as deadly as you thought. Get censored. How are we supposed to come to the truth? How do I know this? There's a brand new working paper published for the National Bureau of Economic Research that found something very fascinating. A lot of fascinating findings there, but, but there's a couple that are worth pointing out. 91% of stories by U.S. major major media outlets are negative in tone versus 54% of non-U.S. major sources and 65% of scientific journals. Isn't that interesting? 91% of stories in the U.S. media are are doom and gloom about COVID compared to only 54% in non-U.S. major media sources they found this to be true even when logic would dictate that there should be more positive stories or studies in circulation. Quote, the negativity of the U.S. major media is notable even in areas with positive scientific developments, including school reopenings and vaccine trials. Media negativity is unresponsive to changing trends in new COVID-19 cases or the political leanings of the audience. U.S. major media readers strongly prefer negative stories about COVID-19 and negative stories in general. I mean that if, if if it bleeds, it leads. That's the thing. It's like you're not allowed to show any good news, even when the research shows it already. I mean, even Fauci over the weekend was saying, "Yeah, like we need to keep the schools open." Now he doesn't go into the child abuse that we're engaging in with the testing and isolation and the masks, which his own admission that it doesn't affect them should negate those things as well. But the point is even even he is starting to admit, like, yeah, the data kind of shows like, you know, I don't know why. He says, like, I don't know why, but clearly, you know, children's not a problem. But 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 the media doesn't reflect that. Nobody made this point better than Cameron Abbasi. He's executive editor of the British Medical Journal, very prestigious. He wrote an editorial at BMJ's website recently accusing scientists and politicians of, quote, suppressing science, unquote, for political gain. Quote, politicians often claim to follow the science, but that is a misleading oversimplification. Science is rarely absolute. It rarely applies to every setting or every population. It doesn't make sense to slavishly follow science or evidence. A better approach is for politicians, the publicly appointed decision makers, to be informed and guided by science when they decide policy for their public. But even that approach retains public and professional trust only if science is available for scrutiny and free of political interference and if the system is transparent and not compromised by conflicts of interest. And then he warned, when good science is suppressed, people die. And indeed, people do die. Because you know, you know what's sick and tragic? NBC, NBC News reported on this, actually. That after eight months, we're now seeing major deaths among seniors and those in long-term care facilities and elsewhere from isolation. They're not dying from COVID. But again, those are actually true excess deaths. Or some of them might not be. Again, alternatively, like two could play this game, right? The same way they were slated to die of Alzheimer's or heart this year, they could have died of COVID or they could have died of lockdown. But none of them are excess deaths. But the point is, we're saying we need to upend our society because possibly these people could live for another few months. When, mind you, none of this has been proven to help stop that spread anyway. <laughs> that, that's the thing. It's not like we're trading a few months of people in hospice for the rest of society and younger people dying in droves from the mental health problems and other missed physical care. It's that you're not even saving those people. But then on the other hand, there's the at least an equal amount of risk that they're going to die of isolation. So if you don't better balance your policies, they're more likely to die of this than COVID. COVID's deadly to them, but not every case is deadly. Even among LTCs, a lot of the cases are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Certainly the death rate's much higher, but it's not like a 100% death rate Whereas if you go and totally cut them off from their family, they will absolutely die. That That is, that is I mean, the cognitive decline. That's the sick thing about, about phony science. When you shut off debate. There are real life consequences to who is right about what is going on. If you're saying this is a hundred times worse than it really is, and you overstate our ability to stop it by a factor of 100, that's a very different scenario we're looking at than when it's really not as bad as you're making out to be. And even and and then aside from that, there is no proven tool to stop the spread anyway. The only thing you can do is cause all the collateral damage. And boy, oh boy, is there collateral damage. Nearly one-third of New York and New Jersey small businesses reported, reportedly closed. Do, do you understand... One third of businesses in two states closed. Do you understand the suicides, the mental health, the poverty? That that equals years of life lost. The estimates are that the school closures alone will lead to five point five million years of life lost. Okay? just the closure of schools. You're trading again people that would have died anyway, where there is no proven ability to stop them from getting it and dying from it. But on the other hand, there's an even greater risk of them dying from your response to it, and then also killing kids, who obviously have many, many more years of life left. Folks, did you know that of the 24 states that have hit their high of COVID hospitalizations this past week, 19 of them have a mask mandate. 19 of the 24 have a mask mandate. There's no correlation. Doesn't matter. Doesn't work. Doesn't matter. This is where we are. Now, I really wanted to get to some of the crime stories today. But we'll have to save that for another day. We went went pretty long here, but I do want to get to the election data fraud. So basically, I want to present to you in just a few moments here, the Pennsylvania data, an analysis I put together with the help of a friend that just shows the entire mail-in ballot thing in Pennsylvania. The results just don't make sense. And it is truly shocking how anyone who wants fair democracy, they want all democracy to, to reign supreme, could just overlook this and say, shut up, concede, nothing to see here. You're breaking democracy by not conceding. It doesn't make any sense. Now, let's remember that to begin with, the, the entire ability to place a third of the electorate on mail-ins in Pennsylvania was created through an illegal Supreme Court decision there in this in the state. And that that is a huge problem. That, that, that is a very big problem. You can't move beyond. It's illegal. The whole thing is illegal. And for good reason. Because what we're seeing from it doesn't make sense. What I'm gonna present to you is data that is firm. Okay, we're talking about a lot about data here and questionable data. This is firm. So, like, there's a lot of people that are questioning. Well, there were more ballots that wound up being cast than requested. I could not verify that that claim that you know that Giuliani made. Um, Maybe it is verified, but I could not verify that that is indeed true. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. From what I see, it's not necessarily true. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say let's say the 2.6 million mail-in ballots were totally. Totally fine. Let's just say they're totally fine for a minute. That somehow there are two point six million mail-in ballots that didn't have any problems with them, and if you were to verify the signatures, no problem. I'm going to juxtapose several data sets and and thoughts from different angles that show what the results that were born out of those 2, 6, 2.6 two point six million mail-in ballots make no, make no sense. So again, here are the facts. There were 2.6 million mail-in ballots and approximately 4.2 million election day votes. Um, that's a total of you know like what is that 6.8 million ballots cast in Pennsylvania. Now we know from the Secretary of State's website because they break down who, your you know who won, how many of your votes were election day, how many were. Were mail in. They actually break that down so you could tell how well they did. So, according to the Secretary of State's website, Trump won election day votes by 2.7 million to 1.4 million, which we all knew, all the polling data, the exit polling data, all showed that. I mean, it showed that lead up to the election that most conservatives plan to vote on election day. You know, so it was like two to one. But we're somehow to believe that Biden won an even bigger margin than two to one. I believe 76%. If you look at the numbers on the Secretary of State's website, it would come out to be about 76% of mail-in ballots. Now, I, I never pay much attention to, to it because I was like, well, yeah, I mean, the Democrats got all their people to successfully vote mail-in, whereas, you know, our guys turned out Election Day. And, you know, so, yeah, maybe you won 76% of mail-in ballots. But 76 is already too steep, and remember, I do want to say here, you might say, well, Daniel, you're saying that, you know, Trump won about 66% of election day. But there's a difference between 66 and 76 if you know what I mean. That's where you start getting to voodoo North Korea, you know, Iraq sort of lopsided margins, at least statewide. Remember, you have certain areas you could certainly get that. But this is statewide. This is everywhere. So some of you have noticed this guy, Gummy Bear on Twitter, you know, and they have these funny names. He's one of the guys I've come to become, you know, meet and become friends with over the whole COVID data. He's put out great data. He's a very studious guy. Like this guy doesn't just come off half cocked and, you know, just to get a conservative narrative or something, you know, he he will often like question stuff we're doing like, wait, Daniel, I don't, I don't know if this is true. He is a very careful guy, but anyway, he didn't really do much for us. He just did simple arithmetic. So we know how many ballots were cast, allegedly. We know how the breakdown went, mail-in versus election day for Trump and, and Biden, respectively. But we also know the the composition of party registration for who mailed in ballots. Okay, that we know from the election project, they, they count it, 64.7%. Of them were registered Democrat, 23.7% Republicans, and 11.6% were nonpartisan, meaning independent or like third party. could be libertarian, green, whatever. So, yes, it skewed towards the Democrats, but it wasn't like they were all Democrats. It was 64.7% Democrats. What my buddy did, who goes by Gummy Bear, I'm not going to reveal his real name here, but what he did on Twitter is he just did simple math and said, wait a minute. Where is the break even point meaning how much of of the of each share of the share of each registered cohort would Biden have had to have won in order to get the margin he did which is now what like 70 80,000 more than Trump whatever it was 3.4 something million because we know how much he got I mean, we know how much he got from mail-ins. We know how much he got from um, the election day. That's posted. But how much did he get from the mail-ins by each party? So he created the following model. Now, you could go and and test this any way you want. It's kind of random, but you'll see why he did it like this. He said, let's say Biden won 95% of returned Democrat Mail in ballots, 21% of return Republicans and 80% of independents. Okay. He still would have come up short of the margin that is being reported right now, a little bit short of it. So it didn't yet, even those numbers wouldn't get in break even. You would have to go to like 95% Dem and, you know, you have 21% Republican, which makes no sense, 80% of independent, which makes no sense. You'd have to juice up those numbers a little bit more to get that. It makes no sense. There is no way, you know this, there is no way Biden won 21% of Republican mail-ins, and there's no way he won 80% of indies. There was this thought throughout the election that maybe there would be a bunch of Republican defectors that did not pan out. Okay, that did not pan out. Republicans turned out stronger than ever for Trump. Now, yes, it is true that he lost more independents, whereas Republicans usually win independents, so in this case, Biden, according to the exit polls, won them. But he didn't win them by 80%. Dude, he won 52% of independents. Okay? And, right, so 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 it makes no sense. You can't tell me Biden got 21% of, of the GOP mail-in votes and 80% of independents. I mean, you could have some sort of, like, theory that maybe the mail-in dudes were more liberal, meaning not just that more Democrats, but among the independents were a more liberal cohort of independents. But it would go from like, again, if exit polls in Pennsylvania, and this is all of them, are telling us he won 52% of indies, so somehow you would have to have some sort of a spread of Biden somehow winning like just... 40% 40% of the election day ones, but like I'm, I'm, I'm eyeballing it here, and 80% of mail in ones. I mean, it, it just, the gap is just too much. It just doesn't make sense. So, what Gummy Bear did is he said, if if you would assume that the mail ins broke down in accordance with the exit polls, meaning Biden getting 8% of R's, 92% of D's, and 52% of Indies among mail ins, and then you, you know, add that to the election day, Biden would be down two hundred thirteen thousand votes, which which sounds very much in line with what we thought it was. You want to say he did a little better with Malins within the margin of error of the exit polling? He has it maybe it would be down to you know as as little as one hundred fifty thousand lead for Trump, but it doesn't make sense. Now this is all assuming. That the 2.6 million ballots are valid and should be counted. But again, we know it's funny baloney. Because we know that the rejection rate last election in Pennsylvania was just shy of 1%. And this was out of like 250,000 mail-in ballots. When you have that few mail-in ballots, these are mainly your career. I call them the careers. The guys that their entire voting career, this is what they do. Studies have shown that among first-timers who fill out mail-ins, there's a 300% increase in error. Right? They're three times more likely to make an error among the first-timers. Rather than 250,000, we had 2.6 million mail-ins. Yet, not only was the rejection rate not three times higher, the rejection rate, or or, or is just 0.038%, were rejected. So, in other words, rather than mail-ins from first-timers, or predominantly from first-timers, being rejected three times the higher rate, we are to believe that the acceptance rate this year, the acceptance rate, was 90, was 27 times higher than in 2016. Folks, we all know that if you would peel through the 2.6 million mail-in ballots and you were to actually verify the signatures, a lot of them were bogus. And again, the proof is in the pudding with these numbers. The sheer number of perfectly completed absentee ballots And the shockingly lopsided margins for Biden lie well beyond our willing suspension of disbelief on numerous fronts. But I just want to give you one more. This point was made by Senator Mike Jones, state senator from Pennsylvania. He's from York, Pennsylvania, um, at the Wednesday hearing that the state legislature held, state senate. He made this point, and I'm just going to elucidate it for you a little bit. And that is this. So basically, if you just make an apples-to-apples comparison between Republican Election Day versus Republican mail-ins and then do Democrat Election Day versus Democrat mail-ins, so apples-to-apples, you're going to have an extremely anomalous and contradictory trend in the down-ballot races compared to the presidential race. So let's, let's go through this a little bit. Bear with me here. If you're doing something else now, tune out and just pay attention. So Trump supposedly lost the presidential race at the top of the ticket, right? At the same time, a Republican named Stacey Garrity, very obscure, no one really knew who she was, a newcomer, beat the incumbent Democrat Joseph Torsella in the race for state treasurer. Very obscure Republican in a a relatively obscure race that no one pays attention to, state treasurer. The Republican actually won. Now, ironically, the Republican won, even though that Republican, Stacey Garrity, actually garnered 91,000 fewer votes than Trump did at the top of the ticket. Okay, well, that in itself doesn't tell us much because, you know, people do bother to A lot of people don't bother to complete down ballot races and more cast ballots than presidential race. So you could have a scenario where you have even more votes at the top where the Republican lost, but the Republican won at the bottom with fewer votes um, just because the Democrat had even fewer because in total there were fewer cast. But here's where it gets interesting. Again, the Secretary of State's website breaks down for us each candidate how many votes they got Election Day, how many votes they got mail-in. And what you'll find is that while Trump got 170,000 more Election Day votes than Garrity, this obscure Republican running for the little known tre- Treasury office, he got 41,000 fewer votes among mail So Trump got 170,000 more on Election Day, 41,000 fewer than the Republican. Not just talking about Biden, this is comparing to another Republican. He got more overall, many more Election Day, but fewer than this down ballot Republican Election Day. You could see it straight up on the website. Again, this is not like some of the rumors you hear on the internet. This is hard data. So it's kind of funny. Mail in ballots really seem to dislike Trump, even compared to other Republicans, but okay, fine. Same dynamic played out in the state auditor's race, similar dynamic. Where obscure candidates, the Republican ultimately won, I think it was an open seat, the Republican ultimately won, but won again with fewer votes than Trump lost with, but did better than Trump in mail-in ballots. Trump received 105,000 more votes than Republican Timothy DeFore on election day, but managed to receive 65,000 fewer vo- votes among Malins Now hold that thought for a moment. We see that when comparing predominantly Republican voters to each other, because again, they're predominantly Republican, we're looking at the Republican totals. Now it doesn't mean they're all Republicans. There's you know some degree of crossover, but generally Republican or conservative leading voters because you're comparing the vote share that one Republican got to another. So we're talking about generally Republican oriented voters in both races we see that fewer people filled out the ballot for the obscure Republican treasurer and auditor candidates when voting in person, okay? It seems like voting in person, they dropped, whereas in mail-ins, they had more to the point where they beat Trump. That's what we're seeing here. Now, on the surface, that kind of makes sense because more people would be in a rush after waiting online for an hour, and then you're like, Once you get to the thing, you feel pressured by the officials, the people waiting behind you. I I know I certainly felt that, like, like, I got to get out of here. Like, you don't want to sit and read it. It's uh, just like, you know, you kind of want to make room for the next person. I, I felt it. Just, it's a very pressurized environment when you're sitting with all those people and just you're in a rush yourself. They're in a rush. So you would expect to find more, quote, lazy ballots, meaning not filling out the more obscure races like auditor and treasurer and some of the maybe ballot questions among those voting on election day, then in the comfort of your home, you have a ballot there. Yeah, let me sit back on the rocker and you know read it and, and go through it. Fill it out. Okay, with that in mind, let's move on to the race for attorney general. So there, the incumbent, this is different. There, the incumbent Democrat, Joshua Shapiro, won the race. Now, this is is very important. Shapiro is well-known. I mean, not as much as Biden and Trump, but well-known in the state, much more than the guys for auditor and treasurer. We certainly see this clown all over the media. And he also happened to win by the largest margin of any statewide election. So in other words, Biden supposedly won. The Republicans won auditor and treasurer. But when Shapiro won the attorney general race, that was like by four or five percentage points, right? It was the the largest margin of what were generally pretty close races uh, across the statewide election offices. Now, think about it. If the obscure Republican victor for treasurer and auditor outpaced Trump's total for mail-in ballots while, of course, garnering fewer votes than Trump overall, one would certainly expect Shapiro, well-known, who won in the largest overall margin over his opponent, to outpace Biden among mostly Democrat voters in mail-in ballots. I mean, for it to be symmetrical, I can't think of a reason not. Yet, what do we find? As luck would have it, Shapiro got 52,000 more votes than Biden on election day, but 54,000 fewer votes than Biden among mail-ins. Well, if people are lazy about filling out down-ballot races, wouldn't you expect to see that more among election day votes, as we saw with the Republican candidates? I mean, that's a little bit weird that you would find more people just not filling out the attorney general, who's much more well-known than the auditor and treasurer, among mail-ins? I mean, folks, this just doesn't make sense. And what what it all points to is that Biden, no matter what, Trump seems to always be at the losing end of Malins, and Biden always seems to be at the winning end of it, if you know what I mean. Whereas when you look at the Republican versus Democrat down ballot, it kind of makes a little bit more sense and it's kind of uh, mixed results, but more consistent in the sense of Hey, you know, you would expect more people to fill out ballots more comprehensively at home than in the pressurized environment after waiting on line for an hour at the polling place on election day. I mean, you put all this together, the illegality of these votes to begin with, the rejection rates, the the just the insane, like all these incongruent things like we saw in Georgia as well these insane margins for Biden over 80 million votes cast for him he had no events no excitement but it's just the mail-ins where he needed them seemed to outpace not just Trump but other Democrats as well I mean, again, Shapiro is the type of guy. Like, if you're a Democrat, you'll be juiced up about him. Biden's like, okay, I hate Trump. I May mean, I'll vote for Biden, but like, you're not. You know, no one was was excited about him. Everyone agrees to that. But again, the same people cooking the data on this cooked it on COVID. So that's why I could believe it, because we already know this with COVID. Now, look, we're gonna do more shows in the coming days practically what we can do to fight back. But we also do need to fight the information war to win hearts and minds of people to get them to fight back. So that's why I'm going to keep doing these type of presentations. Let me know your comments, concerns, and questions. D Horowitz at blazemedia.com. Today was a longer show. I figured after all this time off, I wanted to give you guys a little bit more. And we still left tons of stuff on the table we'll have to get to later in the week. We are back, we are energized, we are rested, and we are ready for a counter revolution. Till tomorrow, thank you all for listening, and God bless.